welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. We are so excited to share another episode in our debut spotlight series, where we highlight a debut author we want to place firmly on your radar. Today's spotlight is shining on the excellent debut author, Victoria McKenzie, and their novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. Victoria McKenzie is a fiction writer and poet. Her writing has won numerous awards, including a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award, the inaugural Emerging Writer Award from Moniac Moore, and was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. She's been awarded prestigious writing residencies in Scotland, Finland and Australia, and currently teaches creative writing. We also hear through the grapevine that a second novel is already in the pipeline. Victoria, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So what we always love to start with, well, I say we, it's mainly me, isn't it, Hannah? I'm Pretty sorry. Much. Pretty let's, much. Just, <laughs> let's just face it, it's just my nosiness. Um, but we would love to know, what are you currently reading? Sure. So I am currently reading um, The Pharmacist by Rochelle Atala. She um, is based in Glasgow um, and it's her debut novel that came out last year. Um, So it's kind of um, speculative. It's set in a bunker. Um, uh, There's this group of people in there. I'm only a few chapters in, so I, you know, I can't give any spoilers because I don't know what's going to happen. But one of the main characters who is telling the story is a farmer. Um, she's down there sort of dispensing meeting with everyone pretty much that lives in the bunker we don't know why they're in a bunker um we're sort of assuming that maybe there's been some kind of nuclear incident but it's absolutely fantastic premise for a novel because you've got a really diverse bunch of people in this very claustrophobic strange setting so it's really character driven and interesting that sounds Um, right up my street yeah Yeah. uh, Rochelle's brilliant um it was a Sunday Times paperback of the of the week, I think, recently, and it was also shortlisted for um, Scotland's Fiction Book of the Year. So, yeah, really enjoying it. Ooh, I am ordering that straight away. I know it's just another one to my list. Sounds so good. <laughs> Um, So, Victoria, as this is a series dedicated to debut authors, we'd love to find out what your journey has been like. And have you always been a writer? So um, my journey has been pretty convoluted. Um, So I've been writing for about 20 years. I'm in my early 40s. So I've been writing about 20 years. um, But I actually wanted to be a poet when I first started. Um, So I did some creative writing classes. Um, I moved from Brighton to Scotland to study at St Andrews and did a master's in creative writing when I was in my late 20s and that was poetry and then I did a PhD and that was poetry and at some point along the line I got thoroughly sick of poetry so I started (laughs) to write fiction. Um, I started off with short stories. It wasn't until my mid-30s that I actually started to think about writing a novel. I think the the length of novels was really daunting Um, and then I started to write Brantwood which is a novel about the Victorian art critic John Ruskin Um, and initially that went really well um, some of the awards that you mentioned in my intro were for Brantwood so I got um, the Emerging Writer Residency at Cove Park in Scotland I got Creative Scotland funding Um, the Emerging Writer from Moniac Moore was for Brantwood as well and the Lucy Cavendish shortlisting was for Brantwood so I was absolutely um, convinced that this was this was going to go brilliant 
recently and I was going to get an agent and a publishing deal and I finished the book and I started to query agents and I spent about a year doing this um I did get about half a dozen full manuscript requests which kind of you know kept my chin up a bit but it was super painful experience and I began to realize that actually this novel wasn't going to get picked up and that perhaps it wasn't finished it wasn't ready and I felt quite blue about it you know how rejection is very difficult especially as I'd had so much hope um for it so during lockdown I just thought okay fine I'm just going to write a novel for myself something that I want to read something that's maybe a bit crazy it's just for me I'm not going to worry about the market and I started to write this novel about Julian of Norwich which became uh, for thy great pain have mercy on my little pain and the experience of getting an agent and publisher was completely different it was such a balm to my soul um, I sent it out to a small number of agents once I'd finished it it only took me about nine months to write whereas I've been working on Brantwood for quite a few years Wow! Um, I sent it out to four or five agents and Sam Copeland at RCW got back to me on the same day saying could I send the whole thing which I did very excited and the next day he offered me representation oh. it was like just extraordinarily exciting wow. yeah and I mean it was RCW like I didn't have to be asked twice I was yeah. <laughs> utterly thrilled um and then Sam sent it out quite quickly he felt that it was um already you know quite extensively redrafted and edited and um I ended up having a two book auction and um going with Bloomsbury and what was um one of the best things for me is that Bloomsbury offered me a two book deal and so they took on Brantwood which was um healed my broken heart (laughs) that's incredible yeah what a story that's what I like a movie (laughs) (laughs) it's like a romance me and my book Finally reunited. <laughs> um, having had a big break from Brantwood, I can see, you know, that actually it wasn't ready to, to go out to agents. It's amazing how much difference it can make to have that big bit of time away. So I'm really enjoying the fact that I can now get stuck back into it, make it better and know that it's actually going to be out there and find readers that's amazing I was I think I spoke about this on the Rosie Andrews episode that my friend was trying to get uh, her debut published and they were kind of at the point her and her agent where they were like this debut probably isn't going to get its day um and then she found out yesterday that she's she's been offered a publishing deal which is just amazing that's Um, wonderful and I I feel like it's so much sweeter when you've had to deal with rejection and disappointment it really is so much sweeter yeah do you have any advice for for writers trying to get their first book published you know maybe if it doesn't work out or anything do you have any advice for that I would say do do what I did really and start something new just Mm. keep writing and keep trying to become the best writer you can keep reading as much as you can but also I think write what interests you you know don't worry too much about the market you just can't second guess it because publishing so slow and it's been two years since I signed my deal or the book actually comes out so you just have no idea what you know it might take you a couple of years to write and then if you get a deal it might be another couple of years where it's out so you just have no idea what's going to be popular in four or five years time Mm. so follow your heart you know if you're really interested in a subject and I think that enthusiasm will come through in the writing that was that'll be what wins readers over absolutely yeah I agree I think as well we've we've noticed a lot we're talking to a lot more debut authors that that rejection is just as much a part of the experience if not the predominant part of the experience Mm. that 
all writers kind of have to go through. Yeah, I think you'd be a very unusual writer to have no rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, and even once you've got a book deal, um, you know, these days it's quite a precarious career path there's no guarantee that you'll then get another book deal so if you if you do want to make it your career something that you know you do for many years I feel like you're risking rejection again and again as a writer Mm. you hear all sorts of stories of really established prestigious writers you know they could have written eight or nine successful books who then struggle to to get another book published it's pretty brutal so yeah I think you do have to accept that rejection is part of the process and it's very, very difficult, but you just have to, you know, persevere. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing advice. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my wall. Persevere, <laughs> <laughs> get through it. <laughs> well, as actors, we, we uh, deal with rejection probably we know more it too than well. your average show. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. What I uh, really wanted to speak to you about initially is that the, the source material for the book is mm-hmm. clearly heavily influenced the narrative and the characters. Um, my reading experience was fantastic. And I think a huge factor of that was uh, what felt like the research was that went into the book. Um, can you tell us a bit more about like the source materials influence on your writing process? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I really enjoy the research stage. I love truffling in books, finding all the kind of the juicy morsels. I really enjoyed um, doing sort of social history research, so finding out what people at that time ate, what they wore, what they did in their leisure time, that kind of thing. Um, so I mean, the, the main source material were the books that, that my two main characters wrote themselves. Um, so Revelations of Divine Love by Julian Norwich and The Book of Marjorie Kemp um, by the great lady herself. Um, these, these books are written in Middle English and I'm not a medieval scholar so I read them in translation in uh, modern English but I still felt that you could um, you could hear something of their different voices their different personalities in these books so I wanted to kind of as a as a as a novelist kind of fictionalizing them you know characters so important there were certain character traits in the writing that I wanted to draw out even more for my own book so with, with Julian it's it's quite a it's quite a plain theological text in some way. She doesn't talk a huge amount about her her, her life, her personal life. Um, so for me as a novelist, that was a completely blank canvas. We don't really know that much about Julian of Norwich. And she took her name from the church where she was an anchoress, so we don't actually even know her real name. Um, so I could invent a life for her but nonetheless her book was important in terms of constructing a voice for her she's very calm she's very contemplative she's very reflective um, she's quite serious in some ways um, and it was initially Julian that interested me because I'm kind of obsessed with nuns um, I love reading books about nuns um, and initially I had thought that Julian of Norwich had been a nun it was only once I started my research that I realised an anchoress is a bit different very strict very constricted life living just in a single room uh, yeah so so that was what got me started but once I started researching Julian I very quickly came across Marjorie Kemp who I think is probably slightly less well known so I got the book of Marjorie Kemp which is her autobiography as we'd call it um she didn't actually write it herself because she was probably illiterate which was very common at that time um she dictated it to a few scribes so again there's a sort of issue there of well how close is it to her voice you know she couldn't have read it over to check 
how you know how close they were sticking to what she was actually saying um but nonetheless I, I felt there was a character there that that was very um engaging for me people have quite strong reactions to Marjorie not always positive but once I started reading this book I I was blown away by her voice you know she's kind of garrulous she's boastful and she's always trying to like show how she's like better than her neighbors how Jesus loves her more she has this incredible relationship with Jesus where he's almost like this lover she's always telling us how handsome he is um she has sort of these conversations that are very intimate with him and I just thought it was wild I loved it I've never <laughs> read anything like it and then thinking about juxtaposing that with Julian who I said is you know quite serious quite theological that was just so much fun as a writer to think okay I'm gonna like interweave these two women's voices I'm gonna kind of juxtapose their two approaches to their visions of Christ um sometimes for slightly comic effect you know you've got Julian's seriousness and then you cut to Marjorie just kind of being a bit crazy and rambling and complaining about things a lot but what really mattered about Marjorie to me is I felt that despite all this boastfulness to me there was something else there something a bit lonely a bit sad a bit unfulfilled and that she was using this um I these visions of Jesus to comfort herself and getting comfort that she wasn't finding in her life in her relationships um, and I'm, I really like that idea of maybe the reader reading between the lines with Marjorie and thinking, OK, she's saying all this stuff, you know, she's going to go to heaven. She's going to be the one sitting at Jesus's right hand side. She's not afraid of death. But actually, there was sort of an, an irony there. You think, well, no, she is afraid of death and she is lonely. And so that that was really fun to write. I, I, you know, I have a huge soft spot for Marjorie Kemp. I love I love Marjorie. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. That is such a you character led. Like, and she's me. <laughs> I think a lot of people can identify with her, and I, a lot of people have mentioned, like, wouldn't she be amazing on social media? Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes. she'd be all over it. She really would. She'd be all over it. And she's, you know, in kind of modern parlance, she's such an oversharer. Yes. <laughs> And my favorite, my favorite moments of Marjorie were just the weeping, just the yeah. weeping. Like it's just me. I just cry all the time. It's nothing. <laughs> it's like shut up. And I'm like, no. <laughs> but how like unashamed she was to just like yeah. wander the streets wailing. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone is just like please be quiet like yeah. it's just like no <laughs> but I think um there's another thing about that as well it's just like she's so brave yes because yeah. you know to say that you had visions of Jesus at this time mm. was essentially heretical mm. and heresy was taken super seriously by the state and the church you know she risked being burnt at the stake and she actually had a priest when she was younger who was taken to London and burnt for heretical views. So, you know, she'd have been well aware of the risk mm. that she was taking. Um, so, yeah, she, she's, she, is, she is hilarious, but she's also got this kind of steeliness to her. She's absolutely determined to talk about what she's seen. And so, I, I you know, I do really admire her as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think what you were saying before about imagine her on social media, like I think she'd have a big fan base. I really do. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Be like Marmite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously the style of the book is is very unique, as we as we've said. Um, but I and as we've just said about Marjorie, like I loved the insight into these characters' minds. You know, they were both very different, but I, I loved 
their individual voices. I particularly appreciated uh, the later part in the book. I'm being very careful here of not revealing too much, but there's a later part in the book where um, dialogue is uh, set out like a script, um, which I loved. What inspired your writing style? I It's hard to say. It was something that I didn't feel that conscious of. And I've looked back at my early drafts and it's there from the very beginning. First of all, the interweave monologue. So it's the first person. I wanted to really prioritise their voices rather than have it filtered through a narrator. And then the, the script at the end was there right from the very first draft as well. Um, it's like I wanted to kind of strip away anything that was superfluous. Um, and I almost imagined it. It's funny talking to you both because you're actors, but I sort of imagined <laughs> it on stage. Oh, yeah. Um, with these two women sort of spotlit and the fact that they were speaking through a curtain um, at Julian's window so they couldn't even see each other so in a way there's I didn't really want there to be anything for the reader to see either I just wanted it to be all about hearing these voices um, and just putting all of the attention on, on the words that these two women were saying to each other I was so excited when I realized that they had met when I started doing my research because it wasn't something that I had known initially so I was really just as soon as I realized this thinking okay this I want to make the kind of focus the climax of this novel and then yeah I just I just wanted to imagine what these two women could possibly have had to say to each other you know living at similar time similar visions in some ways but utterly different personalities utterly different lives what did they make of each other and I just as as a novelist I found that question of of character fascinating yeah I I loved I found you know both characters really striking and I loved that you mentioned theatre because I can absolutely see it on stage and you know you've got two I'm actors saying, here so guess, guess, who's play, <laughs> guess who's playing Marjorie I love you <laughs> I love it no you're both perfect <laughs> well sorted it's sorted it's sorted let's it's, make this uh, happen <laughs> that's casted yeah I can't I can't actually count how many how many things we've got lined up now Hannah with the amount of thoughts I know to, I know they've, they've told us we're cast I'm sure it's like <laughs> now. I'm still waiting for the contracts to come through though, wait but... for the emails wait for the emails <laughs> <laughs> anyway moving on from us one of the things that I really loved about about the novel was the the way that you used religious imagery and and dreams um, and how they play like a quite a fundamental part of, of both of the women's lives. Their visions particularly come to mind. And the, is it the shoeings? Is that how you say it? Shoeings? Shoeings? Oh, so um, Julian writes it with an E. But as I'm not a medieval expert. As far as I know, you just say showings. Oh, but, right. Yeah, but I could be completely wrong. But I say showings and it's my book. So oh, they, you know. okay, <laughs> you make the rules. You, you make the rules. We're going to go with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Um, but yeah, so they, they particularly come to mind when I think about when we're talking about that kind of uh, religious imagery and dreams. Um, how difficult was it as a writer to create those, those moments? moments and choose what to include and at which point and how much of it are we going to see from her, her perspective or their perspective 
I found it fascinating. Could you let us know a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the things that's so engaging about both of their books is how vividly they write about their visions, their showings. And I think at, at that time, it was um, very normal to be very physical and vivid thinking about, for example, the suffering of Christ on the cross in a way that I think, you know, makes some of us uncomfortable um, today. But, you know, Julian is really dwelling on the fact that this is a human body that's suffering and looking at close detail about the sort of desiccation of the skin or the wound in his ribs where he's been speared. And so one of the things that, that's so interesting to me yeah, is, is the kind of physicality. It's not a kind of rarefied, abstract spirituality. It was very grounded um, in Jesus's body. And then with Marjorie, um, she I mean, Jesus is like a pal, isn't he? I mean, he just comes down now and then when she's feeling, you know, blue, it seems, and, and has a chat with her and it's lovely. But then she has these other visions where she imagines herself into the biblical stories. So she imagines herself at the birth of Jesus. You know, she's almost a midwife, you know, helping Mary, swaddling him. Um, and then she imagines him herself at the at the death of Christ. And again, she's like comforting Mary. She makes her this like spicy hot drink afterwards. And it's sort of so banal, but it also makes it so real. Um, and during, during my research, I found that that Marjorie imagining herself into these stories wasn't actually unique. It wasn't, I mean, it seemed to me just so Marjorie, but actually it was quite a common thing for people to do in the medieval period. Um, to, and it's called effective piety when they like imagine themselves into the Bible stories. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really fun to write, I suppose, to kind of dwell on those physical details, to dwell on the, the things that, you know, that they drank or touched or smelt. So for me, it was a really interesting approach to religious ideas. And one, I suppose I, I don't know, I, I always really like bringing together like the intellectual with the earthy. Mm. I cut, you know, I hate the idea of like the ivory tower or whatever. I, you know, I like thinking about intellectual ideas but I'm also a woman and a human body and that doesn't go away and that was one of the things I got really excited about thinking about Julian in her cell actually because you know she becomes an anchoress to contemplate her showings um, to live this very spiritual religious life but I was just thinking yeah but you're still a body you know you mm. still have to defecate and eat mm. and keep yourself clean and this is um you know, this is a cold cell with an earth floor. They're going to be earwigs. You know, it's going to be yeah. woodlice. Um, and so I really, I had a lot of fun kind of trying to bring together the idea of, you know, okay, she's a mystic, but also she's a woman with a body and needs. So I really enjoyed um, kind of like smashing those two things together. Yeah, I love, I love that she, um, that Julian kept, uh, had the occasional cat and that um, <laughs> one, one winter squirrel moves in and the cat's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I can't think that she mentions a cat in, in her book. I could be wrong. I can't remember a mention, but in recent, like, you know, depictions of her paintings ever since, there's often a cat there. <laughs> so I liked the idea that, that she that she had a cat. And then I suppose I have a cat too, and he's super grumpy. Um, <laughs> as, as most cats are, you don't really get cheerful cats, do you? Yeah. Um, so I just, yeah, I just, I sort of liked this idea that that maybe he would take umbrage at the idea of these <laughs> other creatures coming in. You know, he'd, he'd get the huff. 
<laughs> and I, I think I think cats do tend to live quite a like solitary existence. You know, they don't. They, they, I mean, they they live amongst us peasants. Uh, <laughs> absolutely so they would be a great anchoresses wouldn't yeah. they I mean 100%. and especially like they'd have a maid to kind of like you know bring them their food or yeah. you know, bring them blankets that's all they need <laughs> I am I am my cat's maid I am. Yes. <laughs> it's a problem um so I have the first quote of the episode can and... I just say this is a shock because usually I'm getting told off because I'm like quote a minute and then and I thought kind of turning up with a quote but I am a bit scared because we have a tendency to choose the same quotes that we love so I'm Don't a bit even. nervous I'm Don't sorry even. I'm sorry it's happening I'm here first so <laughs> Um, so my quote, if you don't mind me reading, it is um, spoken by Julian, and I'm going to say nothing more on that. As a young woman, every time I sat under the chancel arch in church, I'd looked at the paintings of sinners being dragged by demons to the mouth of hell, where unfaithful wives were stripped and beaten, moneylenders roasted and murderers boiled in oil. And I'd wondered why the Lord was so angry with us. I wondered how God could love us since we were such sinful creatures. And that is just uh, the small bit that I just really loved. And I reread that specific paragraph about five times. Just the idea of, and I don't know if I've misinterpreted it, but just the idea of women being perceived as like sinful creatures. I just felt that the representation in this book of, of women of faith was just so powerful and the representation of the treatment of women as well. Um, it's obviously particularly poignant, um, which we see a lot through like their marital relationships and all that kind of stuff. And um, what did you want to kind of interrogate about women and their relationship to God and the church in your book? Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose. So I'm not I don't actually have any religious faith myself, Oh wow. Um, which, yeah, it probably will surprise some readers. Um, but I and I hate saying this in this like really abstract way. I've always been really interested in religion mm-hmm. and I, I really hope that doesn't come across as like condescending like a lot of people that are close to me are religious um and you know besides anything else I think the major religions uh have so much effect on the way that we live whether we th- whether we're aware of it or now in terms of like our legal and ethical systems like the values that we have and so on are so shaped by you know the history of religious thought basically so I just think it's really you know I'm interested in it and I think it's important but then so you've got sort of these theological questions that are explored in the book and they're the sorts of questions that I I like thinking about as well so even though obviously the book's not autobiographical as a novelist you get to pour in all of the kind of random things that you like thinking about um and so I really I'm really interested in this idea of of you know if God's omnipotent then why do we sin because surely you know these sorts of like questions you go over in in your mind as you grow up why are we allowed to sin in that case if, if God's in charge um so I've got these sort of abstract theological questions but then there's also the question of the church as an institution which for me is a very separate thing Mm -hmm. from wider theological questions so I was sort of really keen in the novel to be very respectful of exploring religious faith which I do have enormous respect for but at the same time being critical of the church which is a very human institution as far as I'm concerned and is responsible for uh, you know a, a lot of poor treatment of women 
um, a lot of the kind of patriarchal biases that we still live with. And that has done, you know, I'm not saying it's done no good, though I don't want to be um, getting hate mail here, but, you know, <laughs> it's it's clear that the church has done harm at times. Mm. Um, and I, so that I was sort of wanting to explore that kind of human aspect of the church, how an individual priest is not the same thing as a kind of religious ideal you know a priest is still a human person so yes I guess I wanted to sort of explore the treatment of women by the church in a way that is certainly far from positive whilst Mm. also holding you know onto these theological ideas that really interest me and that I want to explore in a more sort of respectful intellectual way. Wow yeah I mean it's it really astounds me I mean my friend uh, Emma who I need to stop mentioning on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) but um she is a playwright and um, I was in her play Pure which was kind of an interrogation of the treatment of women within the church and she grew up in like a heavily religious environment and um, you know how much trauma I guess she's she's got as a result of that Um, you know the way she was treated the way women that she's friends with and that she knows from within the church the way they were treated and I think you know what you were just saying about patriarchal biases like how that kind of affects the way that we live now like it's just so true and I think I'm just going to be throwing this book at her like she's gonna (laughs) she's gonna absolutely love this but yeah I was so surprised that that you're not that you're not religious yourself I mean I'm not but I am interested and I often ask my friend Emma about like her religious experiences because I find it so interesting and it you know it, it influences the way that we live and our behaviors and our mindset towards things um so yeah I just I'd found that fascinating because it's it feels really really well researched so I think you've absolutely done it justice you know regardless of whether you're religious or not that's that's great to hear yeah (laughs) it's I mean it's it's tricky and when I when I queried agents with it when I queried Sam Copeland who became my agent one of the things I said in my query letter is um I know it's quite a theological novel for an agnostic (laughs) to have written (laughs) (laughs) because It was it's sort of I wanted to flag up that um yeah that that I didn't I kind of I did I don't have a dog in the race, if you like, with with religion. You know, I'm not trying to um propagandize or anything. You know, I'm an interested outsider, I suppose. And I think as well, what comes through, and I think this is why it would be a surprise to quite a lot of readers that you're not religious, is because the both of the women's passion for their religion and love of their religion in its many forms you write so well that Mm. you can't believe that you're not religious (laughs) because they're so they're so passionate about their their faith um and I think that just it just shows that your your writing is just how great your writing is I was really conscious as well that at that time you know Catholicism was essentially the default and there wouldn't, I mean, there was the beginnings of kind of uh, like the thoughts that then became Reformation ideas um, with translating the Bible into English or questioning the role of priests, that kind of thing. But basically for, you know, for most people, they wouldn't have questioned it in, in the way that we do today because we're surrounded by people who don't have religious belief or people of different religious beliefs. So it's something I think that we're much more self-conscious about now. So I was really concerned when I was writing to to kind of enter their mindsets where it's just like yes we're catholic and and we don't we don't even think about it in a way you know but we certainly don't 
question or doubt it that's just I'm a human being I'm a Catholic you know was, I wanted to make it this sense of that that was simply their worldview I suppose mm-hmm. absolutely I, I, it's, it's a fascinating um look at their lives and I, th- I feel like um one aspect of their lives is touched upon really really well um and that's motherhood mm-hmm. and that both of their relationships with motherhood because it plays a role a different role in either of the in both of their lives um we see julian suffer a loss of a child and we see marjorie have multitudes of children <laughs> like I, I i lost count like at one point it was like 12 then it's like 14 i'm like what this can't be anymore um but yeah, so we see we see those different kind of that juxtaposition of their their relationships with motherhood. What role do you think that motherhood um, had for the narrative overall? I think it was a really important theme that I wanted to explore. Absolutely. So in the book of Marjorie Kemp, she does mention that she has fourteen children. So I was using that um, that kind of fact, that nugget that she'd given us, and and working with that. With Julian, as I said, we don't know anything about her personal life. So um, the her family life is something that I invented with the child. Um, and also I wanted to make her own relationship with her mother quite tender. Um, so, you know, she, she both is a mother and has a mother. And I, I wanted, I suppose I wanted to juxtapose um, Marjorie's very traumatic experience of motherhood with something more positive. Um, just to show a kind of range of experience. Um, And I mean, I find, I mean, it's my novel, so I should be convinced by it, but I find it very convincing that Julian would have had a child because (laughs) um, of the way that she talks about God being a mother as well as a father. You know, it's something um, that's a really important part of Julian's theology is this idea of, of God is a mother and God is caring. God is who we turn to um, when we're in pain. And obviously, you know, those those roles would have been um, would have been more. F- well, they're quite fixed now, aren't they? But this sort of, you know, this the cliche that you turn to your mother when you hurt your knee kind of thing would have held true then. Yeah. So so motherhood was really important. And there, there has been you know, academics have speculated that Marjorie's visions were a result of postpartum psychosis. We don't know that, obviously, um, uh, there wouldn't have been those sorts of ideas in circulation at that time necessarily, or certainly not couched in the terms we use. But also, I didn't want to explain away Marjorie's vision so I I've shown that she has a traumatic birth and I've shown that the visions start well we know that they did start very soon after the birth of her first child but I didn't want it to be sort of dismissed as cause and effect mm-hmm. you know I wanted to still allow a space for the fact that perhaps these were just you perhaps she was simply a Christian mystic who who had visions because you know God chose her God thought she was special and and sent his son to her to, to have these conversations and I I was keen, I think, for both of them not not to kind of close down explanations for these visions. Um, And I also didn't want to suggest in any way that I didn't believe that they had visions. For me, that's like not an important question about whether or not they had them, whether or not, you know, they they thought they had them or or made them up or whatever. I just um, I really just wanted to take that at face value. Yeah, it just felt artistically like the right thing to do. I think it's so interesting what you said about how people have suggested that Marjorie was in this postpartum psychosis because, you know, history loves to dismiss women uh, Mm. having opinions. (laughs) They've got opinions, so they must be mad. It must be mad. It must be a disease. 
please. <laughs> but also, you know, 14 labors with nothing to soothe them. Like, <laughs> you've got your rose oil. Don't complain. <laughs> no, you come at me. Don't anybody come at me with ro- rose oil. No, thank you. I was like, my massive epidural needle. <laughs> and whatever visions come, they can come. <laughs> Gosh, no, I can't even, I can't even imagine it. I'm so concerned for Marjorie. Oh, it's, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, that she survived given you know how dangerous childbirth was at that time Mm. to go through it I mean at least 14 times we don't know even if her children all survived or not it was just um was really brutal I mean I'm not a religious person but I fully believe her that you know she believes that God is is with her at all times because he must have been for for her to have survived without without help for pain without pain relief I just know so obviously I feel like there's so much that we could talk to you about you know about your writing of these women and the particular themes linked to them you know I feel like this is a really gritty feminist piece um which we obviously love especially as feminism would have been like such a foreign concept during this period how did you feel (laughs) researching and writing about these women was it an empowering experience or was it quite bleak maybe it wasn't that bleak actually which might seem surprising given you know obviously women's lives were very constricted couple of things really surprised me when I was doing my research. So I've mentioned that I've mostly been working on Brantwood, which is about Ruskin. So most of my reading for a long time has been 19th century and, you know, a lot of constriction there for women's lives. So going back, you know, 600 years from now, you'd expect it to be even more constricted as if there was a sort of trajectory of women slowly being liberated. But that's not that's not true. Um, Medieval women actually um, have more autonomy, more power than I expected. And I don't want to overstate that, but just a couple of things surprised me. So um, I indicate at one point that Marjorie works as an alewife. So she was brewing ale in her village and selling it. So women did actually have jobs and you know earned money and that gave them a little bit of of freedom and autonomy Um, and the other thing is that they could inherit which they you know they can't do hundreds of years later so I have Julian inherit her mother's estate and you know money is power it's through having money that Julian can actually become an anchoress because they were expected to pay their own way so she um, you know she signs everything over to the bishop she expects the bishop to ask questions about her spiritual state to check that she's you know ready for the um the anchoress life but actually all he's interested in is that she's got the cash to pay for it but yeah so in a way the fact that she's inherited enables her to make that life choice um and then with Marjorie she inherits from her father and she's able to pay off her husband's debts that he's got debts from bad business um and because she does her husband this big favour, it's this isn't in the novel, but afterwards Marjorie goes on these incredible pilgrimages around the world, um, which they come after she's met Julian's. It's after my novel. And she has her husband's permission to go on these pilgrimages. She goes to Venice, she goes to Jerusalem, uh, she goes to Spain because she's paid off his debt. So your money is power. And so these women do have a little bit of choice in their lives because they have this money. Um, the other thing that just occurred to me to say as well is the anchor life is is clearly so restrictive but I wanted to kind of explore that paradox of freedom for Julian that it's only by becoming an anchoress that she has the freedom to think to write 
to contemplate her showings. And so it's this um, physical constriction that gives her this incredible mental freedom. And for me, that was like a really important part of exploring the anchoress experience. So we think of it as a kind of form of torture, I think, for most of us. But there were very few ways that a woman could live and have, have the opportunity to, to read and think and write, which are basically like the three things that I like to do. Um, so, you know, if I were to go back 600 years, I'd maybe consider becoming an anchoress. <laughs> and I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> and I'd be on the street weeping. Yeah. <laughs> but you could come and visit me and we'd chat through the I curtain. would. I would. I'd, I'd, come and, I'd come and see you every day. <laughs> I would do my best to give you good counsel. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about Marjorie in a modern, in a modern, like, in a modern context. And I'm trying to guess if she'd be um, either like a travel influencer or whether she would be a podcast host and it'd be like something like boss lady or why not both yeah that's true that's true (laughs) I I mean this might start like depressing everyone because it's a bit depressing because you know me I love a bit of sadness the listeners know Um, by now how much you love grief and death and all things related to it so guess what this quote's about (laughs) Death and grief. <laughs> Basically, I just wanted to give the bookends listening a a feel for your writing and a feel for basically the time period. So I'm just gonna read a little bit of the beginning, um, which I think encapsulate the kind of environment in which death and grief were very they were basically everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was just part of life. Um, and I find it fascinating. So I'll just read a little bit. When I was a child of seven summers, a great pestilence came to our city. As the death carts went up and down the streets, the sound of their wheels and the horses' hooves mingled with the sounds of weeping. But there was little time for ceremony, sump. The bodies were wrapped in whatever was to hand, sheets, tablecloths, rugs, and heaved onto the cart. I watched from an upstairs window, something both my mother and my nurse Joan had told me not to do. Sump. The cart trundled to the next house. Sump. Sometimes the covering came loose as a body hit the wooden planks, unravelling to reveal a chin or an ear. Oh, it's just, yes. So um, visceral. <laughs> you're like so visceral. I can only communicate yes. through sounds. Um, uh, but yeah, so death and grief um, are huge factors in this book. Stop saying written. it while you're smiling. I can't I know you can't put this on social media because everyone will know how, how crazy I am but you um you have a wonderful way of including death for what it was at the time which is this kind of general occurrence and everyday occurrence how did you want to portray death and particularly grief with with the women's experiences of grief through the lens of these characters I suppose um so a couple of things so when they lived it was a time of like repeated plagues and I was writing this during lockdown so it was it was such a strange strange time to be writing in and you know I I don't want to kind of make heavy weather of the comparisons but a writer inevitably draws on their own observations their own experiences and thoughts and they're, you know, they're just there were things that I was thinking about or experiencing that I was that I was able to draw on. So, you know, one of the things Julian talks about in that 
section a little bit later is like how quiet the world became. And I think that was something that a lot of people experienced during lockdown. Um, you know, like where I live, suddenly there was so little traffic, mm. so little footfall. Um, a lot of the shops that weren't food shops were closed. And Julian's time, um, time was very much regulated by the ringing of bells, the church bells, because they didn't have clocks and watches. And a lot of bell ringers got the plague and died. And so there'd be, there'd be you know, moments when the bells wouldn't ring. And I just think that must have been one of the most haunting things, one of the most kind of really bringing home to people that there had been this mass death with, with plague, with just the silence, suddenly the bells not ringing so so yeah there were these kind of um strange parallels with our own time but I think whenever I'm thinking about a period of history where there's a lot of death I always really want to humanize it I never believe that just because a woman may have given birth to you know like 14 children and, and lost seven say I don't believe that she would have been blasé about that loss you know um I really don't I think she would have grieved just as much as I would grieve. And so I was really um, kind of keen to show that um, like with, with Julian, how she was marked by the loss of siblings, uh, parents, and then her own immediate family when she's older. And that that wouldn't have been kind of something like, oh, well, I'd, you know, just remarry or just have more kids. You know, I, I really wanted to make that more to make it seem that, you know, I was thinking about how I would feel in that, in that situation. And I really believe that that people would have been just as devastated as, as we were today. Um, only I think I think it was um, Darwin lost a daughter to it. I can't remember the disease now. It was like one of the poxes or something. It was his daughter, Annie. And, you know, he had quite a few children but he never got over Annie's death. Mm. It just, just because he had lots of kids didn't mean mm. that, you know, he he could somehow lose one and, and not care. So that, yeah, it was really important to kind of humanise that experience of loss and grief and to make it feel, um, I suppose, contemporary in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the death, just reading her talking about death, Julian, sorry, reading her talking about death and like the huge losses that she experiences, I'm not going to specify who. <laughs> but I've already given away too much. <laughs> <laughs> but the losses that she experiences are just so like, it just really like moved me and it's rare for me to, to cry at a book, but there were tears. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it, I think it's just, it's crazy that we've gone from, you know, when we were being taught about the plague in school, we were just like, oh, such a foreign idea. And now we've all kind of lived through our own version of the plague. But to an extent, I guess, like we're so much luckier and more privileged than these people would have been. You know, they would have been clueless as to how to kind of navigate this situation. And, you know, just the whole like bodies being lugged onto like carts and stuff. It is just such a haunting image. And I just think, yeah, how you've how you've managed to to make it feel so like current, but but not at the same time. I'm really not articulating myself well here. <laughs> <laughs> It was just, it was just a really haunting image. The whole bodies being lugged onto the carts and just mm. the whole, the way you wrote death and grief are just so moving and poignant. And yeah, I just, I loved it. So yeah. And if, if that opening doesn't get you and make you stay, I don't know what will. <laughs> so we've, we've said before on the podcast that we have a sort of strange bias towards historical fiction uh, mainly because it can be quite dense and 
usually a million pages in length um, and I have big book fear. So that's a problem. How did you manage to tackle so much in such a short novel? (laughs) That's a really hard question to answer. (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) Um, It just came out like that. Um, I was was reassured at the beginning of this when you said that... um, you you were always kind of unsure about writing novels because of the length um yes so I feel like we're on the same page here give me more of these (laughs) (laughs) that is another thing that I put into my query letter to agents as well as like saying oh this is theological but I'm agnostic the other thing was you you have to write I'm pleased to enclose my novel of blah 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 words and I was like oh my god it's 30,000 and you know every bit of writing advice you get is like that that's you know that's not acceptable um don't go querying agents with a 30,000 word book because really yeah absolutely and so I wrote in my query letter um 30,000 words brackets no that's not a typo Just so to be really clear, this isn't, you know, 80,000 is quite typical for a novel. I thought, oh, what if they think I've just hit the three instead of the eight by mistake? (laughs) So I wanted to make it absolutely clear that this is theological and this is short. And if that doesn't appeal, then, you know, stop reading right now. That's fine. Um, I feel feel like shorter novels, though, are really having their moment. Yes, absolutely. And I'm here for it. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I think maybe because I started life as a poet, as it were. Um, I'm sort of very into thinking about how about cutting cutting Mm. right down like when I was a student at St Andrews um, we were taught by Don Patterson the poet and he he would always say like oh bring me a sonnet and I'll tell you you've got a great couplet Um, so (laughs) he'd want to you know hack away most of it um, uh, or you know take him an epic and you'll you'll end up with the sonnet so I'm good at cutting I think because of that but also I I suppose I didn't quite think of it as a novel because it has these sort of weird bits in it you know it's got these scripty bits but also I make some use of sort of bit of like poetic formatting and I've written a lot of short stories so I was sort of the the way that I was framing it there isn't a lot of kind of um there isn't much background there isn't that kind of narrator's voice padding it out telling you about the weather and you know setting the scene or anything any kind of description comes directly through what the characters are looking at and in Marjorie's case she's rarely looking at anything so um you know most of the kind of natural world description or whatever comes from Julian yes I don't know there was something about the kind of the the monologues being interwoven that just you know it lent itself to being short I mean I'm really I'm just really surprised that you've managed to (laughs) to you know write about so many different themes and to explore kind of so much in such a short amount of of pages um I just think that's I mean props to you as a writer because it didn't feel like it needed it didn't feel like anything was missing it didn't feel like you know there wasn't enough I felt like yeah yeah it's that it's that like ability I think it's such a a rare ability to be able to encapsulate such an amazing epic story mm. in such a concise manner and still you go away feeling like you've lived their whole lives you know you but, feel like you've been with them the whole way through and that is how I just, wanted to articulate that just my I brain. know darling I know. <laughs> you are the master to my brain 
<laughs> literally I don't have a brain I've just got a mouth that's all I am but yeah so talking about about um about kind of discovering these characters these people what I really took away from the book was the importance of these women's writing and the impact that these uh unsung really to my in my opinion historical uh, figures have had on the history that we read about and the mm. history we know and have learned about I was really really moved by the stories of these women mm. and I know that this is a fictionalized account of it but I felt like in some way I got to touch upon their lives and to understand more about where women's place was at that time and and what women were still achieving as opposed to what we were not achieving which seems to be the narrative at the minute what I wanted to ask was how do you feel about the influence that these women and other female writers have had on you as a writer or and really as literature as a whole that's a massive question just so you know that isn't yeah epic (laughs) (laughs) I suppose um well one of the things that, that really I felt very strongly when I was writing it was a sense of well, one how lucky we were to have these manuscripts because they're incredibly unusual in, in several ways but also just the horror of what must have been lost because mm. these are you know that um, the earliest books that we have in English by women um, but they can't have been the first so you wonder just how much has, has been destroyed and they're also unusual because you know they're not women of noble birth they're not um, they're not even um, kind of like you know abbesses who may have been literate and, and kept records and so on they're, these books are so unusual in that they are the records of the lives of very ordinary women and that well apart from the fact obviously they're both mystics and they're very extraordinary in that way but in terms of like you know their social class and their experience we we have so little about the women um you know that made up the kind of the bulk of society and so it's a real privilege it's really exciting especially with Marjorie who tells you quite a bit about her life to have that insight so incredibly important for the history of women's writing um and yeah just for, for the history of women full stop really and these manuscripts the fact that we have them is is also extraordinary um I mean we don't have the actual originals um what we have with Marjorie is that fabulous story um, where, well, we had a few excerpts that were preserved from the 15th century and it was assumed she was an anchoress, which when you know Marjorie's personality is actually quite a funny thought. Um, (laughs) But in in the 1930s, there was this country house in Suffolk, some people playing ping pong. One of the guests trod on a ping pong ball. It's like an unbelievably Marjorie story. So they go to this cupboard to find a spare ping pong ball. They have this big rummage, a load of like old tatty books fall out. The owner of the house is like, oh, I'm going to chuck them all on the fire tomorrow. And they're just getting in the way. You know, we need more ping pong balls in this cupboard. Uh, But one of the guests thinks, oh, hang on, you know, maybe these could be of interest. And it turns out to be um, a very, a manuscript of the missing book of Marjorie Kemp it's not the original but it's it's 15th century so it's very close to the time that she wrote it and the fact that we have it is due to someone standing on a ping pong ball is so fluky it's and it's so chaotic um <laughs> that it really fits for Marjorie 100%. Um, but you just think well what else is hanging out in cupboards and country houses you know yeah it, it's really remarkable that we have it um and then with Julian again we don't know where the original is we don't know how 
how her manuscript got out into the world. Um, so, you know, my, my novel is kind of a fictionalisation of, of what might have happened to her manuscript. Um, we do know that some nuns in France made copies of it and that these copies um, were, were taken back to England and kept safe by nuns. So her book's very much... Um, been something that's been precious to women and has been protected by women over the centuries which which also makes it really special but yeah we're, we're so lucky to have them like just you know fires destroyed so much the reformation destroyed so much carelessness destroyed so much it's really amazing that we've got the story of of, of julian's visions and marjorie's visions but also horrendous to think what what might have been um what you know what stories of women we we might know that we don't yeah but i also think as well that the writers like yourself uh, retelling or you know recreating that the, these people's lives it it gives them another another chance to be discovered and another chance to be you know I'd have never have known about Marjorie and Julian without your novel I'd have never have even I'd have probably never come across it because it's just not my field of, of expertise or interest where I would naturally go to but now I'm like oh, you know what I'm so interested I want to learn more about it I want to know about uh, more about their lives about the experiences they had and I think it's great that you know a modern novel can can keep that alive that's a story you know centuries old well that's brilliant I suppose that's like if you know anything comes of this book that's what I would hope for basically to to bring Marjorie and Julian to people who haven't you know who aren't already familiar and to excite interest in their lives and in their works and and have people you know go and learn and learn more about them basically because they are completely fascinating women who yeah they, they deserve to be extremely famous <laughs> yeah they really are fascinating women and uh, I loved love being inside their minds for I mean I inhaled this novel in about 48 hours but <laughs> amazing um I would love to uh, pick your brain about this book you know even more than we already have done um but I've just realized that we've kept you over time so listeners please get ordering for thy great pain have mercy on my little pain which is an iconic title um I will be putting a link to order in the show notes it is out on the 19th of January which is so exciting I can't wait for for readers to be immersed in your amazing book um yeah I'm just so excited to hear other people's thoughts on this um, and I'm absolutely sending a copy to my friend. So yeah, really excited <laughs> for her to read that. Can our listeners um, find you anywhere on social media, not in yeah. person? <laughs> um, I am on, um, well, I live in my Ankara cell, so you, you won't nice. find me. But I'm on Twitter um, at For Thy Great Pain. And I've got a website as well. If you just Google Victoria McKenzie, you will find Amazing. me. Um, and you can contact me through that as well. Gorgeous. I will include all of that in the show notes. Uh, before we let you go... As it's the debut series, um, we do also want to ask if there are any debut authors that you think should be on the radar of our listeners. Yeah, I've got a couple I think I'd like to give a shout out to. Um, so Aoife Fitzpatrick, um, her novel, her debut, The Redbird Sings, is out from Virago in April. It is 
I think it will be very much your cup of tea. It's historical. It's based on a true story. It's about, it's got these fantastically named characters in it as well, like Trout Shoe and Lucy Fry. It's absolutely gorgeously written. And it's very much about women, women trying to be independent and being put down. I'm desperately trying not to give any plot away, (laughs) but it's very exciting and it's it's really exquisitely written like you want to read the sentences out loud it's so beautiful but it's also quite a tense thriller it's it's amazing so the red bird sings by Ethan Fitzpatrick um Lovely. yeah April 2023 definitely give a shout out to um the other book that springs to mind was a debut that was out in October last year Orpheus Builds a Girl by Heather Parry which was oh um, yes I have heard about this yeah so it's completely different um it's also based on a true story and it's quite gothic and gruesome. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm going to massively try not to give too much away. It's also about women, women's bodies, power over women's bodies. Um, I'm sold. I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, can I just say, I was sold at gothic and gruesome. Gruesome. So. Yeah, you would be. <laughs> yeah. Lydia, you'll love it. It's just death all the way. <laughs> So we'll dream. edit this bit out. Edit this out, please. <laughs> no, it's going on the socials, this. <laughs> um, so obviously a huge shout out to Bloomsbury as well for making this episode happen. And obviously Bloomsbury are the publishers of your book and uh, of your second book as well. When is the second book happening? <laughs> well, it's supposed to come out in 2025. So No, we can't wait that long, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be very different um but hopefully hopefully it's interesting uh, but I'm still writing it so um yeah it's still very much a work in progress I'm having well, words we, with Bloomsbury we have words about that deadline uh, <laughs> but also uh, we we would love absolutely love to have you back on to talk mm. about it when that would be amazing that, very much up for that Lydia did you want to ask anything finally well, I'm just wondering if we um, had any anything that you've watched recently, listened to recently that you've really loved. Oh, you're on the spot. Yeah, gosh. So I just got. I'm. I'm always like. I'm never very good at like keeping up with the contemporary. I'm always like a little bit behind. So I just got, too much to keep up with at this point. Yeah, I find it stressful. Like I haven't finished the 19th century yet. How am I supposed <laughs> to be reading everything out in 2023? It's too much. Um, I just got the new Kate Le Bon album, Pompeii, which is really beautiful. So I'm really enjoying that. God, watching. No, I'm way too much on the spot. I can't, I can't think. <laughs> I mean, I just like rewatched The Wire, honestly. I'm I'm like hopeless. I'm I like just watch things that are 20 years old. I haven't yeah, watched The Wire. Oh, so. the wire's what? incredible. You must. Oh my god, the wire. Call like myself my an actor. <laughs> No, oh, come on! You can't, you can't even. You know for a fact the amount of times you didn't even know who Bruce Willis was. I did. I just couldn't think of his name on the spot. Thank you. <laughs> she worries me, honestly. She Don't does. shame me on the podcast. Also, uh, have you watched Four Weddings and a Funeral? No, no, you have not. <laughs> no, I have not. No, no, Victoria. I believe that you would have. I believe I have, that you yeah. would. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. everybody has. <laughs> apart from Hannah. <laughs> so that's all we've got time for today guys 
if you enjoyed this episode and Lydia uh, shaming me, uh, please do rate, review and subscribe um, as it helps to boost us in the charts. You can follow us and more of our mischief at a pair of bookends pod on Instagram and a pair of bookends on Twitter and TikTok. For people that aren't very technical, I don't know how we have so many different social medias, but here we are. Uh, Please do go follow those. (laughs) And um, links in the show notes to Victoria's wonderful book, which, as I said, is out on the 19th of January. um, And you want to be ordering this one because it's incredible. Um, But thank you so much, Victoria, for joining us today. This has been amazing. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye.